This is a Federal News Network podcast. You might not be familiar with a company called DJI. It's a large Chinese drone manufacturer. The Army and Interior Departments have banned products from that company, closely associated with the Chinese Communist Party, because it's a security threat. My next guest says other federal agencies continue to buy DJI drones. Here with the details, policy and technology researcher at the Lincoln Network, Lars Schonander. Mr. Schonander, good to have you with us. Good to be here. So tell us about DJI. It sounds innocuous enough, and they sell these retail, some of these pieces of equipment in China, correct? Yes. DJI is a Chinese drone company that's been around since 2006. They have become popular because compared to a lot of drone manufacturers in the United States and Europe, they're not only cheaper to use, but they're far more programmable. So people have used them for a variety of purposes, not just for consumer purposes, but for example, police forces use it to track suspects. Farmers use them to look at their crops. Engineers can use them to survey roads when doing survey work. There's really a lot you can do with these drones, and DJI has fully admitted this, where they have a variety of lines and types of drones where they use, some being used for more surveillance purposes and some being used for more commercial purposes. So they're big enough that you can put a capable camera and radio type of outfit on there, and it'll stay up long enough to be useful. So these are fairly capable drones. Yeah, I would say that they're fairly capable drones. Scientists have used them to do various types of machine learning projects based on the data to collect on these drones. So people have really gotten used to using these products, all things considered, because how simply useful they are to the average consumer. And review for us the Army policy and the Interior Department policy that you've written about. They banned it. So first, back in 2017, the Army stopped using DJI drones due to cybersecurity concerns. Then we jumped to 2020, And the Department of Interior downs the majority of her drone fleet because they are concerned about the cybersecurity concerns about DJI. To get into that a little bit more, through a little bit of digging, I discovered a report from Interior on their flight statistics from 2021. DJI makes a minority of their drone fleet itself, but the majority, roughly two-thirds of the flight time, because they view them as a better tool for them to actually do firefighting and surveying that type of data than the other drones they have in their toolkit. All right. And uh, what is the security threat of them specifically? There are a few to go into. One is cybersecurity, that the DGI could be collecting data from the drone, either doing telemetry from the drone itself or through the application because typically what happens is you have an iPhone or Android application to actually operate the drone, that there could be cybersecurity concerns with data from that being siphoned over to an actor that is not yourself. Sure. And uh, I think you also wrote that there is the capability that these could be just arbitrarily turned off and crashed or yes. grounded so remotely. So there's a concept called geofencing, where you basically, on a map, you draw a polygon that specifies a specific area where objects can happen in. To provide an example in D.C., that's why when you ride a line bike, sometimes it stops working. You're in an area where it tells you that you can't do the electro assist, so it will slow down. The same principle applies to the DJI drones. They know the locations of the drones so that if it's in an unauthorized area, 
it will simply stop working. One concern is that DGI could retroactively create geofencing spots in critical locations and the drones would suddenly stop working, forcing the United States to either jailbreak the drones to be able to bypass those concerns or simply stop using them in the first place. Right. And I suppose they could also remotely control them. If they can do everything else, they could maybe geofence it right over the White House if they wanted or something. Yes, that was actually a concern recently. There was an article in Politico about DJI drone fleets flying around in D.C. in places they should probably not be flying around. We're speaking with Lars Schonander. He's policy and technology researcher at the Lincoln Network. And tell us the methodology by which you were able to discover that several federal agencies are still buying and using them. Sure. So I used a tool known as the Freedom of Information Act, known as FOIA. We've heard of it. It's when you write a letter to a federal agency asking for specific documents regarding a subject you're interested. In this case, what I did is for the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Agricultural Research Service, I FOIA'd for the procurement records of drones from 2010 to 2020. I sent that FOIA a few months ago. I got it recently and discovered the majority of their drone fleet, roughly two-thirds, was DGI drones. The last drones they purchased were in 2020. In 2021, they purchased a drone from Auntel, a different Chinese drone company that's currently not controversial. These drones are used for agricultural research across the United States, like surveying crops, looking for diseases. As for the Secret Service, it's, I did a mix of FOIAs and going on SAM.gov, which is the government's procurement website, and doing some searching to check if there are any contracts available for DJI drones. And turns out there are fulfilled contracts for DJI drones for the Secret Service. Wow. And do we know what, what they're using them for? Surveying and security work in this case. Right. So the telemetric data from Secret Service, well, the implications there are obvious. And then for the Agricultural Research Service, I guess one could surmise China could get that information and understand strategically how U.S. crops are doing and maybe, you know, introduce there's a disease there. Maybe we can help it spread. I'm just making that up. But that's that's a potential, right? Yeah. A more realistic threat could be much like why the interior down their fleet, that there's a cybersecurity concern of being dependent on one major manufacturer. A new finding, and this will be breaking to your audience, is they got more FOIA data back yesterday where they uncovered 40 more drones that I was not told when I did the first FOIA request. What's interesting about this is I discovered around $1.3 million worth in drones. They did not know who made them. And this is which agency? This is the same agency. This is USDA ours. Okay. So you just found out that there's 40 more drones. The total value is $1.3 So these are not like high-priced no, items. Not quite. Out of the 40 drones, $1.3 in value we don't know to manufacture of. Interesting. Okay. Well, I guess that'll come out now. And what about alternate manufacturers of drones? Are there any that are made in the European Union that are equally yes. capable? Yes. And- Parrot is made in the European Union, for example, and the Department of Defense maintains a system called Blue UAS, which is a set of verified manufacturers of drones in the United States that fulfill security guidelines. Skydio is an example of a drone company that follows these regulations. 
there was an interesting complaint about interior about these regulations roughly a year ago where the main complaint is that american and european made drones are simply more expensive and less versatile than dji drones which is why they felt hampered that they were restricted in the types of drones they could procure all right so have you gotten any reaction since you published something in the wall street journal earlier talking about these acquisitions by usda ars and also by the secret service contrasting with the fact that they are banned by the army and the interior department any reaction so far Mostly praise. I've been getting messages from various American drone manufacturers that are happy, but somebody is pointing out that DJI is simply so dominant in the drone industry that prior to a few years ago, it was 80%. Now it's at 70%. Massive global market share simply because they have the know-how and the production capabilities. And that this makes American drone manufacturers understandably aggravated as they're seen as being outcompeted by the Chinese manufacturer who has cybersecurity concerns. And last year, due to OFAC, has ties to the security state work being done in Xinjiang in China. Wow. And you've also had support from the at least one commissioner of the FCC, too, in yes. this effort. Yeah, FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr, who's been on DJI for some time, approved of this article. Got it. Well, so what happens next? I guess it's up to the government at this point, huh? Yeah, it's up to the government to keep doing the work in trying to manage DJI drones. There were a couple of bills introduced in the past couple of years regulating Chinese manufactured drones. They have not gone anywhere so far. There's also work to be done on state level. Recently, Florida banned the usage of Chinese manufactured drones and is following similar guidelines to what DOD does in procurement. To my knowledge, they're the only state that has these specific procurement regulations. Lars Schonander is a policy and technology researcher at the Lincoln Network. Thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure to be with you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, 
ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, those, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. 
And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and 
diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in, and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time.